Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Frozen 2, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I regularly heed Moana's advice to consider the coconut, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, I'm just a real boy standing in front of another, much more knowledgeable real boy, asking him to teach him about all things Disney, as we watch through 57 films and counting. As ever, our resident brain box is none other than the man, the myth, the legend himself, your conscience and mine, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I've just come off the back of watching one of my personal favourite Disney films. I don't know if that's a spoiler. And I'm very ready to get stuck into it. I'm glad you're doing all right, because I've just come off from watching one of the most traumatic animated films I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and I think this is going to be less a standard podcast than an extended therapy session. So I hope you're going beyond your just Dr. Sam Summers role and going to full dr sam summers therapist role. yeah i'm gonna to have to quickly nip off and get a new phd um <laughs> just so that i'm qualified to take you through what you've just witnessed oh man there is so much to dig into on this one pinocchio who who knew who knew sam did you you should have warned me <laughs> i don't want to warn you ben i want you to go in absolutely fresh i want these kind of raw reactions coming through well believe me it's it's gonna get raw on this one but enough high diddle dee from us, we're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, after the rollicking highs of Disney debut Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, we get into weirder, wilder, and much, much darker territory with 1940s Pinocchio. So Sam, as much as Pinocchio is maybe more of an experience than a linear narrative, what can you tell us about the plot of Pinocchio? Give us a little recap from beginning to end. What happened in this film? Because I blocked it all out of my memory due to the sheer PTSD of it all. So Pinocchio follows an old woodcarver called Geppetto, who wishes upon a star for his lifeless marionette to become a real boy. His wish is granted by the Blue Fairy, who brings Pinocchio to life and assigns a just randomly passing Jiminy Cricket to be his conscience. The next day, Pinocchio heads off to school, only to be led astray by a sly fox, who sends him on a series of strange, seedy, and seriously disturbing misadventures. Eventually, Pinocchio returns home to find that Geppetto has been eaten by Monstro the Giant Whale, he mounts a rescue attempt with Jiminy Cricket, he sacrifices himself to save his dad from drowning, and the Blue Fairy rewards his heroism by finally making him a real boy. So that was the plot of Pinocchio, that is apparently what it was all about for the 90 minutes that I can't remember, that's a lot of stuff to deal with. So was this the first time you'd ever seen Pinocchio? It sounds like it's the first time you've ever seen Pinocchio. 
I think this was the first time I've ever seen Pinocchio. This is one where I maybe watched it as a child. I maybe watched it as a child, but I have no real memory. There were flashes of images here and there that sort of were lingering. Um, the, just the, sh- the the image of the whale crashing through the water um, was familiar. And obviously there is so much Disney iconography here. There is, there is Jiminy Cricket. There is Pinocchio himself. There are songs that are some of the most famous Disney songs. Um, especially, I mean, this starts with the thing that everybody knows, which is When You Wish Upon a Star. But it's hard to know whether those are just things you absorb. Those are images and sounds that you just absorb through the the general consciousness. I couldn't remember the actual plot of Pinocchio. There were whole sequences in it that I just had absolutely no recollection of. So I think this was my first time properly watching Pinocchio. And it was... I, I, so we, we've been joking. I think this is one of those things people joke about this film to an extent and be like, oh, Disney is darker and creepier than you think. But I think I was really genuinely shocked at how dark and creepy and upsetting it was. <laughs> um, it was it's it's really strange. It's very strange. And at the same time, it is such a huge step up from Snow White. Right. Yes. In so many senses, the the like the animation has come on hugely, and it has all of these amazing new techniques or things that feel really, really ahead of their time for 1940. And the plot is very just strange and impressionistic, and it moves from one crazy thing to another in a way that feels really bold. Maybe too bold. Maybe <laughs> it's, it's such a strange thing that this is a family film. That this is a film that you maybe would show to a small child, which I after watching it never ever would (laughs) i do think a lot of the more insidious stuff does go over your head if you're young but i also think there's a lot in it that is just very instinctual and sort of subliminal in how overwhelming and scary it is of this sort of very innocent character who as soon as he enters into the world is preyed upon by absolutely everyone he meets um it's wild but this is one of your favorites this is this is sam summer's prime uber disney yeah this is absolute top tier disney for me i mean i think that well first of all when i really rank my disney movies i think it's hard to do it without splitting them up into eras like I don't think you really can compare Pinocchio to The Lion King or to Moana or something like that. You've got to kind of take it in the context in which it was produced, which is it's the second of these first five, this run of five really important and influential and generally really good Disney movies. And I think that all of those first five films, which is Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, I think they're all like four or five star classics. But for me, Pinocchio is the absolute standout for a variety of reasons. And I think prime among them is just how it takes everything that they learn in Snow White, everything that they developed for Snow White, and just absolutely take it to 11, take it to the next level. The animation is, you know, in a a three-year gap, during which time they were also working on Fantasia and prepping for Dumbo and Bambi. In a three-year gap, it's taken such a visual leap. It's taken such a technological leap. And I think possibly the most, I mean, you might be able to attest to this, having watched one after the other. For me, the most apparent leap is in terms of story and characterization. Yeah, totally. I mean, you think of Snow White and it's 
a fairly contained story. Like we said last time, it's these three quite distinct chunks. You have the sort of setup where she's at the castle and she runs away and enters the forest and has the scary forest time. Then you have this middle section with the dwarves and it's sort of dwarf antics inside their house. And then you have the third act where the evil queen comes in and she hatches the plot with the apple. And those segments it doesn't give you this huge wild weird world in the way that pinocchio does and that's before you even get into the fact that you have sequences that are presented from characters point of views you have all of these changing scales that you're seeing things on you have stuff that's um sort of human scale and you have things that are jiminy cricket scale it's sort of playing with all of these different tones and textures sort of even 80 years pre-spider-verse you have all of actually these really different styles of animation sitting on top of each other or right next to each other in a way that i completely didn't expect so um yeah the, the step up from from snow white to this in a storytelling and an animation sense it's such a bigger film you can feel how confident they were having had the success and the sheer technical achievement of having pulled Snow White off. Absolutely. I mean, you see, like you say, the confidence with which they are now utilising these technologies. If you compare, like last time, I pointed out the um, the establishing shot of the castle in Snow White, which uses uh, the multiplane camera, which was a piece of technology that they developed just prior to making Snow White in order to simulate realistic depth in animation and realistic camera movements and animation and the well there's an open and multi-plane shot in this which it's the establishing shot of the town in which geppetto lives at night and um, which you see as jiminy cricket kind of brings us into the story which is you know already more impressive i think than the, the castle shot at the beginning of snow white and then if you watch the the second establishing shot of the town which is the day after pinocchio has become a real boy when you, you pan through the, the skyline, um, through a bell tower, past lots of birds, and then you go through multiple different kind of town squares, all of which are populated by, you know, 10, 12, 14 characters, kind of background townspeople, bearing in mind that Snow White never had more than eight characters on screen at once, and rarely even that. Plus, there's about, I think I counted about six planes of, of art here, six kind of individual paintings that are being manipulated in relation to each other and in relation to the camera to create the illusion that we are really zooming through this town and like you said the word scale before and yeah part of the effect of that is it creates this comparatively immense scale and um, but it also brings us into the film's world guides us into the film's world and makes us believe in the world and the characters who live in it more than snow white it establishes stakes as much as it establishes scale completely um so there's so much stuff to dig into with this one but before we do we were talking about the fact that snow white was a huge hit it was a massive hit for them it was a huge risk and it paid off so then how did walt disney choose pinocchio for his follow-up what was the the process where they were coming off the back of snow white how did they decide what they were going to do next well initially the follow-up was going to be bambi bambi was the planned second film and that was proven to be quite difficult and time-consuming, in part because Walt was very adamant that it was going to be a huge step up from Snow White in terms of realism. And in particular, he wanted to really capture the movements convincingly of these animals that we were looking at. 
and also it was kind of it was based on a fairly expansive novel and they were trying to like crack out to turn that story into a feature film in a like 90 minute feature film so there were some issues which were making bambi take longer than they thought it would and one of the animators one day handed walt I mean, this is the legend. With Disney, it's hard to really tell exactly how everything went down. So one of the animators handed Walt Disney the novel by Carlo Collodi, uh, The Adventures of Pinocchio, and apparently Walt read it in one night and was absolutely overjoyed and enthused, and he came in the next day saying, this is the movie we're going to make. Now, we're going to get onto the novel later on, and I find that somewhat hard to believe that Walt Disney read that thing, because the as much as Pinocchio is dark, the film, the novel is leagues darker, leagues stranger. <laughs> and, and we'll chat a bit more about that later. But um, it's hard to believe that Walt was so enthusiastic about it after one read through. So that was kind of how Pinocchio became the next thing that we're going to adapt. And they put a lot more money into it than Snow White. So Snow White, uh, as we talked about last time, it was the budget for that film already inflated by an enormous magnitude over the course of making it. And this was almost twice as expensive as Snow White. So again, the kind of budget kept ballooning as they kept pouring more and more money into, in particular, the effects animation. So around this time was when Walt really started to um, subdivide his staff into character animators and effects animators. He, he started picking out the guys who were good at characters, the guys who were good at movement and comedy, and the guys who were good at the effects and kind of creating the world. So I had separate teams working on this, working through different avenues of the production. And of course, around this time as well, Walt bought his first like big studio building in Burbank with the money from Snow White. And Walt Disney Productions went public as a company with uh, his brother, Roy Disney, being the CEO in charge of finances and stuff like that. And a lot of this film, and in particular Fantasia, which we're going to look at next time, was kind of a pitched battle between Walt and Roy in terms of the, Walt being on the creative side and Roy being on the side of finances. So they really doubled down... Snow White made all of this cash and they they bought their land in, in Hollywood, they bought their studio space, they set production forth on two really big, ambitious new movies. They were they were really going for it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it shows on screen. According to some sources, Walt was much more invested in Fantasia, because these two films, you know, shared a production cycle very close to one another. Um, they began around the same time and they came out around the same time. And Fantasia, again, we'll talk about next week, was really uh, Walt's passion project. So according to some sources, he kind of neglected Pinocchio as it got further along uh, in his production cycle. But I don't think it shows on screen. Uh, like we've said before, everything here, just the, the narrative and the story is um, not only a huge step up from Snow White, but also, as I think we'll come to find, superior in many ways, to the three films that were to follow as well. So let's properly dig into Pinocchio then. And I guess at the beginning is as good a point to start as any. You mentioned the yeah the opening when we meet Jiminy Cricket. And something I thought was really interesting about that is that once again, we get this motif of the book, of the storybook, and yet compared to last time when it was the live action book that, that opens in that very classical sense, this time we already have something a little bit more meta, something that's breaking the fourth wall. You have Jiminy Cricket talking to the audience, sat on top of the book. Um, you have all that playful stuff where the book won't stay open and he's having to like mm -hmm. um, position the candle so that it keeps the book open. It already has 
this extra level of playfulness to the framing of we are telling you a story and actually it's not just disney telling you a story it's one of the characters in the story who is introducing you to the story that he is about to tell you that it's also a book it's um got all of these weird like layers and levels to it right from the very beginning yeah um, and i think well one of the things that's most striking about the sequence instantly is that you know in snow white it's a static book it's a static image a very simplistic kind of shot with the book framed in the center and that was kind of a photograph of a live action book as well and in pinocchio it's all animated and it's this much more kind of detailed shot where jiminy cricket's leafing through the book on a desk and there's just a lot more going on in the frame and i think it could also be maybe read as a like gentle parody of snow white of that opening sequence in Snow White with Jiminy Cricket kind of trying and failing to keep the book open, like you say, in a way that really uh, would be mirrored quite closely in the classic 2001 movie Shrek, which is in many ways... It only took us one and a third of an episode to get to Shrek. Here we are. We made it already, guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, as, as you will know, Ben, Shrek is one of my kind of pet obsessions as an academic. Sam has just written the world's first academic book about Shrek, and that is a real thing that Sam has done, and I'm <laughs> deeply proud of him for it. It's a real thing. It's on Amazon.co.uk. It's called DreamWorks Animation, Intertextuality and Aesthetics in Shrek and Beyond. But the reason why I bring it up, it's a perfectly legitimate reason, which is that the, the opening scene, um, the iconic opening scene of Shrek leafing through a storybook on the toilet before ripping out a page and using it to wipe his backside is basically <laughs> doing to the classic Disney model what Jiminy Cricket's already kind of doing to Snow White in this shot. But uh, let's move on quite quickly past the very opening frame of the film, because we've got a lot to talk about. We've got a lot to talk about. Let's talk about it in both a narrative sense and a thematic sense then, because something that is striking straight away is the mix of animations and the mix of tones and the ambition that that tells you. Because then once we've had the sequence of him opening the book, we get a point of view shot of mm. Jiminy Cricket hopping through the streets towards Geppetto's workshop. You have POV shots in the second Disney film. You, you, there was nothing like that in Snow White where you had shots from characters' perspectives. And beyond that, something that I hadn't really clocked until we were talking about it last week is that quite a few of the characters in Snow White are rotoscoped characters. They sort of filmed real li live-action people and drew based on that. And in this one, actually, your main human character in it, which is Geppetto is much more cartoony in the style of the dwarves. And then the sort of unreal character comes in, the blue fairy, and she's the one who's rotoscoped. There's all sorts of weird sort of distinguishing characteristics between who gets to be cartoonish, who gets to be more sort of realistically human, and it's actually the sort of fantasy character who is more real than Geppetto. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, because in Snow White, uh, we talked about last time, the distinction between these kind of animation styles whereby you've got the prince and Snow White and the queen are quite closely rotoscoped and the witch and the dwarfs are caricatured. That's kind of used to other the dwarfs and the witch from the, the human characters. But in this case, I think they use the inherent uncanny qualities of the rotoscope, which is, you know, we were saying even when you watch the prince in Snow White and he's supposed to be kind of the handsome hero of the film, it looks weird because of how closely it's being based on actual footage of a, of a real life person. So in this case, 
the baseline human character that will follow for most of the film is Geppetto. So when we're introduced to this otherworldly ethereal presence of the Blue Fairy, it's kind of utilising the uncanny qualities of close rotoscoping to give her this like otherworldly quality, to, to make her seem like she's come from a different kind of world than, than Geppetto. Because then beyond that, if we're talking about the the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse effect of having sort of these very distinct, different styles of animation next to each other, I did not know that there were sentient animal characters in this. So you come into it, well, other than Jiminy Cricket, we know Jiminy Cricket's in this, but having the characters, the creepy fox guy and the horrible, horrible cat who I hated <laughs> so, so much. Why did you hate the cat? Why did you hate Gideon the cat? Gideon the cat, because he looked just awful. He just looked, not in a badly animated sense, just his design was, I think, intentionally mm. kind of horrifying. Yeah. Feels like it's crossing a line in a sense when you have these characters who are pushing the plot, who are human characters, and then you also have these other characters who are animal characters who are just accepted in this world as being mm. people, but for some reason they're animals. It was... I wasn't mad at it. I didn't hate it, but it it was strange. I wonder what led to that decision for them to have human characters and animal characters. Well, it it does come from the novel. They play different roles in the novel, but Jiminy Cricket and the fox and the cat are a presence in that book. Actually, the fox and the cat are a belly. The fox and the cat play more of a role in the book than they do in the film, I would say. And... So, so they already had to contend with this fact that you were going to have these anthropomorphized animal characters who interact a lot with Pinocchio. And what they seem to have done is defaulted to the style that they had developed in the Mickey Mouse cartoons. I mean, the Honest John the Fox and Gideon the Cat look like they could have stepped out of a Mickey Mouse cartoon, and they kind of behave like that as well. Like Gideon especially is the comic relief. He like pulls a giant hammer from his trousers and things like that that you would expect in a, in a real cartoon. Yeah, to me that I, I wrote down on my notes that was very sort of Looney Tunesy kind of slapstick, which again is another animation and just storytelling tone that clashes against all of these other tones that are that are happening in the story. On the Shrek note, on the on the meta note, the other thing that felt like a sort of quite distinctive thing is that then obviously jumping forward quite a bit, but when you have the Paradise Island sequence, you see the Mona Lisa. Is that the first ever Disney pop culture reference? I know it's not like hip and up to the minute uh, Mona Lisa, but that is also then bringing something from the real world into this sort of fictionalized Disney world. Yep, I'll take that. I'll take that. There's other things like the uh, structure of the pool hall in Pleasure Island is meant to resemble uh, one of the central structures of a previous World's Fair, I believe. That's something I've read, not right. something I recognise myself. But yeah, so there's, there's a couple of little little hints to cultural references in here. So in terms of the themes of this, I was trying to work out what this film is, especially the way it starts out. It sort of morphs as it goes on. And overall, I think it's an existential coming-of-age morality tale. It seems to be partly about what it means to be a parent, Geppetto, this sort of quite sad old man wanting desperately to be a dad and actually being really crap at it when he gets the chance. <laughs> it's it's Pinocchio's coming-of-age story of him being this very innocent, naive character who's led astray by everyone he meets. And it's also this weird sort of existential fable about wanting to be a real boy and having to earn the right to be a real boy by being good. So the way into all of that is... Geppetto making Pinocchio as a puppet and yeah the blue fairy granting him the wish 
to be a real boy. And then we have about, kind of like with Snow White, that you have a good sort of chunk at the beginning that's just establishing everything that's going on. We have actually quite a long time of Geppetto and Pinocchio and the little cat and the fish, not the creepy cat, the nice cat, just hanging out together and having a nice time and enjoying the fact that Geppetto's wish has come true to, to have this little boy. Yeah, they have to kind of establish in quite a short space of time, because if you think about it, the vast majority of this film takes place in around 24 hours. So they have to establish in a very brief space of time that Pinocchio has a kind of happy childhood and a relationship with Geppetto so that we feel the shift when he moves into this kind of seedy underbelly of the outside world, when he moves through this world of experience. Because, yeah, like you say, it's a coming-of-age story. Um, it's a story of innocence and experience. It's a story of the innocent character being slowly corrupted by everything that's out there in the world, by you know greed and gluttony and, and indulgence in sin. There's an argument that actually what it's pushing is a very specific and very Disney kind of middle-class version of what it is to be a, quote, real boy of like what it is to be an adult because oh, what, what Geppetto and Jiminy Cricket both want Pinocchio to go to school and study and the things that kind of tempt him away from that kind of straight down the middle uh, one might say middle class like education are the kind of temptation of a bohemian artistic lifestyle when the the fox kind of tempts him to become an actor sings hi diddle dee dee and actor's life for me and that kind of all goes wrong for him. And then in Pleasure Island, he comes face to face with what can be considered like the trappings of work and class indulgence, things like pool and drinking and fighting and smoking. So he's shown these quite specific alternative paths and he's told that actually what constantly reminded what you should be doing is going to school and learning to like function as part of a proper society. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's positive and quite a specific version of being a real boy. Yeah, maybe Walt Disney was trying to work some internal demons out here with his, his choice to pursue uh, the arts and an artistic lifestyle. Although, obviously, he made shed loads of cash as well. So I think the whole thing worked out pretty well for him compared to uh, Pinocchio. So after this sort of introductory sequence with Pinocchio and Geppetto having a nice time, they have a bit of a dance. Um, there is slightly less of that silly symphonies feeling to this one compared mm -hmm. to Snow White where you had that time in Snow White with all the dwarfs just hanging out and having a bit of a sing song and doing their funny things that weren't as funny as they thought they were <laughs> those like you said felt quite like silly symphony sequences strung together into something vaguely more narrative whereas this one doesn't quite feel the same way it feels like more of a film in that sense yeah, every kind of dance sequence, every comedy sequence serves the story in a very real way. Like there's uh, several musical sequences before we even leave Geppetto's house because you get Geppetto, first of all, dancing around with the inanimate Pinocchio, which establishes his kind of desire to have a real son. And then you get the give little whistle sequence where Jiminy kind of introduces himself to Pinocchio. And then you get another kind of brief dance around when Geppetto meets the animated Pinocchio for the first time. So all of these sequences do serve to move the story along and serve to tell us things about these characters in a way that they didn't really in Snow White. Yeah, Snow White was just pure antics. Do you think Pinocchio was funnier than Snow White? Um, Because you had some problems with the dwarfs and their comic <laughs> stylings. I did, I did. I don't think Pinocchio was trying to be as funny as Snow White. Right. I didn't find it as funny, and especially 
by the end of it, I was just like, it was, it had gone so far off the deep end at that point that I was not laughing. I was just crying deeply inside. This one didn't really make me laugh. And I think it feels like it was approached as a more serious film. I think it's dealing, even if it's doing it through this naive, innocent character who presumably they want kids to relate with, although you'd hope not considering everything he goes through in the story. I think despite that sort of character being an entry point for kids, it's dealing with a lot more deeper, serious, weird things like I was saying the sort of Geppetto's unfulfilled wish to be a dad in his old age and Mm. um, the sort of the existential questions of like, what does it mean that Pinocchio is alive and how does he earn his right to be alive? It feels like it's going for something weightier and bigger and more bombastic rather than like, come along, see the dwarfs, they're going to trip over each other and that's going to be hilarious. Yeah, all right. Yeah, definitely. It would be difficult to um, to laugh your way through some of the things that happen later in the film, uh, which I think is why Jiminy Cricket, who's one of the main comic figures, is kind of sequestered away from uh, many of the more kind of pivotal and dramatic sequences. Like he doesn't get swallowed by Monstro when Pinocchio does. So he's not there for that kind of emotional reunion uh, with Geppetto. And he, he's not there when Stromboli is locking Pinocchio in a cage and he's not there for most of the Pleasure Island sequence as well. Because let's just briefly talk about that for a second because something that that brings to mind for me is the fact that all of the stuff in Pinocchio that has sort of entered the cultural consciousness is the light, nice stuff. It's When You Wish Upon a Star as a song, which is a sort of very wistful, lovely melody and it's right at the start of the film. It's the the entrance into this story, which is a, it's it is quite light for the first half an hour before everything goes horrible. Um, so that Jiminy Cricket is the other thing that really entered the sort of um, the the consciousness at large. That's what you think of when you think of Pinocchio mm. and the nose growing sequence, which is one sequence in the film, and it happens like over halfway through, and it's one thing for like two minutes, and then that's the end of that bit. Um, yeah, so all, I'd say those are the things that when you think of Pinocchio that's what you remember and none of the other weird scary big serious dark very sinister stuff that hasn't really endured in the same way or just become part of the narrative of what everyone remembers pinocchio to be yeah we've collectively blanked it out as a society um <laughs> Yeah, were you surprised by how little nose growing and lying there was in this? Totally. Um, I, I'd almost forgotten that that was coming until it happens. Yeah, it's over really briefly. And then when the fairy goes yeah. away and she says, I'm not coming back, it's like, oh, well, I guess the nose thing isn't coming back either then. Um, so yeah, I was really surprised yeah. that this very short part of the story has become one of the big defining things. I think because it is quite a whimsical and very easy to distill idea of it's the thing you tell your kids if you lie your nose is going to grow like Pinocchio yeah it's become completely synonymous to the extent that it's also his main kind of characteristic in the uh, the Shrek <laughs> films as well when Pinocchio pops up it's for a joke yeah. about his nose growing and yeah maybe it is because it's it's one of the only sequences like that you can kind of bring up in polite company without frightening people too much without dredging up horrible memories like you don't get parents telling the kids like oh don't drink and smoke or you'll turn into a donkey because no one wants to no one wants to dredge up that image hell no and on that front let's go into the weirder darker much much stranger part of it so I think it's part of the setup of this being a coming of age film that after having this quite safe 
experience with Geppetto, Pinocchio is going to go out into the real world and the real world is going to be really, really hard for him. And God, it is hard. There's an evil fox and a cat who want to drag him off to the circus. Then he is forced into this like song and dance routine that felt like an anxiety dream. Hey, your first performance is happening right now. You're going to improvise it on stage and suddenly there's going to be all of these like flirty lady puppets doing the can-can around you and you're going to get <laughs> tangled up in all those strings. Then you're going to get abused and locked in a cage. Then you're going to get kidnapped and taken to Pleasure Island where nobody comes back as boys. And that we haven't even got into the whale stuff yet. It's it's <laughs> it, it's a real like snowball effect of really bad things. One of the things that struck me about the Stromboli sequence is that Stromboli is a character. Obviously, he is a villainous character, and you exaggerate that villainy. It was a it was a slightly icky stereotype there. He's very very exaggerated features. He's got noticeably darker skin than I think anybody else in this world. And there are other Disney films to come when we're going to have to tackle head on some very outwardly racist stuff um this one didn't feel as overt but there was an edge to that character that just felt a bit like ooh. and yeah he, he was just the beginning of things really well he is a cocktail of stereotypes i think there's there's obviously stereotypes of romani people in there of, of travelers in there i think honest john calls him like an old gypsy at some point but there's also that's kind of mixed in with anti-semitic tropes as well in terms of like aspects of his visual appearance and his greed and that's been read as Walt kind of attacking, really, um, the primarily Jewish Hollywood hegemony, you know, these Jewish studio moguls who he hadn't really had a very good working relationship with up until this point. And one of the criticisms most often leveled at Walt is that he's an anti-Semite. And this is one of the most obvious, one of the few really obvious pieces of evidence for that in one of his films. But I do think Stromboli as a villain is is very effective as kind of this this first truly threatening thing encountered by Pinocchio. He's got an immense weight to him, which makes him very intimidating. I mean, the way he throws Pinocchio in that cage, and that is really sinister, actually, that moment where Pinocchio thinks he's going home and he's just like, oh, I'll come back tomorrow. And Stromboli goes along with it for a while. He's like, oh, yeah, you're going to go home. You're going to go home, are you? And Pinocchio is like, yeah, I'm going to go home. I'll see you tomorrow. Um, and the way he's carrying Pinocchio on his shoulder, there's something about that whole dynamic that just feels really, yeah, it's very unsettling. It's exploitative. It's, it's exploitative in a way that's very relatable. And it's actually, I think it's one of the many things in this film that is probably going to be more frightening for adults than it is for children, because that relationship is one that I think adults you know, who've had experiences in the working world are going to be able to relate to a lot more. Uh, I think it's one of the things that kind of goes over the heads, that may go over the heads of children. Obviously, he's, he's viscerally frightening just as a character in a way that I don't think anyone can miss. But the nuances of that relationship, I think, are going to be more familiar to adults watching. And I mean, that is really nothing compared to the whole Pleasure Island sequence, which I was genuinely taken aback when this came into the story. Just the, the introduction of what was the, who's the character who enlists the fox and the cat to sort of get Pinocchio? Well, that's that's an interesting question, Ben. He doesn't have a name. His name he's referred to as the coachman, and he doesn't have a kind of last and present in the pantheon of Disney villains like Stromboli kind of does. Like none of the villains in this are really part of the the like Disney villain pantheon as it is marketed 
along with kind of Maleficent and Ursula and Jafar and people like that. But you do sometimes see tableaus of Disney villains that include Stromboli. The Coachman is kind of excised from all of that. If you hadn't seen Pinocchio before, it's quite likely you would never have encountered this character before. Because when he comes into the story, when you see him for the first time and he's he's talking to uh, the fox and the cat, there is a moment where he reveals his true kind of extra villainous potential and his whole face turns red. It's like mm. a really transformative moment. And that was such a shock. Even now, seeing that, there's something really violent in the way he visually changes right in front of your eyes in a actually really quick way. It's like a flash. It's almost like a yeah. vaguely subliminal thing that you, your brain barely has a second to catch up that you've just seen that happen. Yeah, it's borderline demonic, and you never really find out who this guy is. Like Stromboli, we understand him. He's a mirror of something that we might recognize from the real world. But the coachman is kind of implicitly supernatural. He clearly has some kind of supernatural connection or abilities, uh, as evidenced by what he ends up doing with these boys. But we never find out what that is. It's completely left to our imagination. Because I think before you know what is happening uh, at Pleasure Island as well, even just the way they frame it, I don't feel like it's much of an over-exaggeration to say that it it sounds, especially now, it sounds so awful that they kidnap these boys, take them to Pleasure Island, and the quote is, they never come back as boys. And in the framing of this story that has already proven itself to be about this very innocent character who is going to be exploited by the world at large and by all of these very sinister people, it felt very, very shocking to hear that in a Disney movie, in a film that you would likely show to your kids. It was yeah. it was really horrifying. Again, though, connotations that might only be picked up on by adults. So what is actually happening at Pleasure Island is even trying to wrap your head around the specifics of this scheme is quite difficult. But what is actually happening is that the boys who come to Pleasure Island and indulge in things like drinking and smoking and brawling, they are transformed through their vices into donkeys, into jackasses, as the film uh, almost exclusively refers to it. And there's obviously a metaphor here. Uh, the, The friend that Pinocchio makes, who's called Lampwick, who is an absolute rotten little kid who does get turned into a a donkey quite on. He says, um, like, oh, what do I look like? A jackass? The idea being that, you know, if you indulge in these things, you become a jackass. It's a fairly straightforward moral message there. He he has a pretty badass quote where he get, he just turns to Pinocchio and says, "Being bad's a lot of fun, ain't it?" <laughs> it feels very like almost like the Lost Boys. Yeah, uh, party, what is it? Sleep all day, party all night. It's fun to be a vampire. It's the uh, the tagline. Uh, yeah, there's a bit where Lampwick and Pinocchio walk past a building wherein there's just a massive fight going on, and Lampwick says, "Oh boy, a scrap!" So this is just an awful little kid. He just loves a scrap. <laughs> he just loves he loves nothing more than a scrap uh, and there's there's other buildings here on pleasure island there's there's a model home like a huge mansion that the kids can just destroy there's lots of places selling beer and cigars and things like that and so i guess the coachman's plan seems to be turn them into donkeys and then either use the donkeys as labor or sell them as labor well that's the thing they in the cages for the donkeys some of them were being sold to mines right, some of them yeah. were being sold to circuses so again it's even being sold into further uses of exploitation um it's so nightmarish and and that extends to the visual design of pleasure island itself it, it's very kind of almost tim burtony you'd say today mm-hmm. 
almost like Boschian hellscape level. There's there are some really unsettling scenes where they're quite like long shots. You see it from a distance, and you see all of the boys i don't know trapped on rides or in houses doing various things and they're drawn in a very simplistic like overly simplistic way in a way that feels really uncanny Mm. that they are even there being like dehumanized in that sequence Uh, and if we're talking about how much bigger this feels than snow white how much bolder and how much more ambitious on a pure visual level this as a creation the sort of the vision of pleasure island completely speaks to that for me yeah, so my question is, what are the coachman's overhead costs on this donkey farming operation? Like, he's built this <laughs> enormous structure where he's like, he's filling it with things for them to consume and destroy. And, like, surely there's an easier way to get your hands on some donkeys. If that's your end goal here, to sell donkeys, there's more straightforward ways of going about it. But I guess that only adds to, like, his, the kind of implicit demonic nature of the character that this is that the donkeys are a byproduct of just punishing these kids. And maybe considering he has the power to turn kids into donkeys, maybe he can just click his fingers and the house rebuilds itself. He doesn't have to physically build a new house every time they, they get another boatload of kids. God, it's so bleak. I mean, the scene where Lampwick is actually transformed into a donkey, uh, that is, and we'll keep a running tally of this in case it gets surpassed, but I'm pretty sure that is the single most disturbing thing we will see in a Disney film watching all of these movies. It is body horror for kids. And it's the way as well that it extends to Pinocchio himself. So Pinocchio starts to transform and he gets the ears and the tail and you feel the sort of visceral terror because he's just seen this happen Mm. to his mate. And something else I didn't expect is that then they, when they escape from Pleasure Island, his ears don't go back. He doesn't lose the tail. He's, he's, He's stuck like that. It's not until much later on that that, is undone so the consequences of that he has to live with for another like 20 minutes of the film yeah he's stuck like that and also i think it's worth pointing out the coachman is just continuing on with that operation the coachman that is not brought down he gets no comeuppance neither does stromboli neither does honest john neither does monstro all of the villains in this movie were so used to seeing everything being wrapped up in a bow by the end of a disney film all of the villains in this movie just continue on absolutely unabated as Pinocchio moves on with his adventure, you know? So there's a happy ending there that the Pinocchio's a real boy, but all the other horrors that we've seen in this world just continue on. So once they escape from Pleasure Island, that takes us to one of the sequences that I had a vague knowledge of, which is this underwater sequence and the arrival of Monstro the Whale. And there is a tonal shift there that if we're talking about how successful this film is it didn't drag me along for that shift you have a quite whimsical sequence where they're like oh we're we're underwater now and look there are all these tiny seahorses and isn't that cute and i was still reeling from all of the horror everything we'd just gone through um it felt kind of whiplashy to me and it's not long then before you go full on into the horror again when we see how truly monstrous monstro is yeah i kind of agree with that i did i did have in my notes you know both from what it this time and just from my recollections of all the other times i've watched it that this is one of the scenes where it does kind of start to drag and you can see why they've put it in there it's clearly like coming from a place of well we've had a lot of horror and we're about to have a lot more horror so let's have some light relief but it doesn't really move the story along in any meaningful way and it is a bit kind of it does kind of drag it is it's the closest thing to those scenes um, from Snow White, where the, the dwarfs wash their hands and things like that. It's nowhere near as, as long or as useless, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not necessary. 
and when we do meet monstro that is a sort of really significant creation um, and again if we're talking about the different tones and textures of the animation he has a very sort of i don't know the technical stuff of this sam you can fill me in but he has a very sort of pencil tone a sort of like pencil illustration aesthetic feels totally different to a lot of the other sort of visual styling that we see through the film yeah he seems to be um kind of a fully illustrated character as opposed to you know the figures like Jiminy and Pinocchio who will have been drawn as outlines and then colored in with ink and paint most of the shots of Monstro look like they've been fully painted and you know that works quite well because he doesn't actually move very much and he isn't very flexible as a character so you don't need that kind of detailed animation work you can just have him as this huge great monolith which allows you to go into kind of more detail in his appearance as well and talking about scale as we were before how you go from like Jiminy scale to human scale well this is a whole new level the absolute size of this thing and again the, the weight that it carries with it as it smashes through the ocean is immense and it really does take it onto this whole new level of of, of scale he is an absolute unit as they say <laughs> he is an absolute unit as i'm fairly certain they still say <laughs> How much of that was inspired by Moby Dick? It feels very Moby Dick, but I presume that the whale thing comes from the book as well. It's I don't think he's specifically a whale in the book. He's a fish. Uh, he's a big fish. So, yeah, I think this has been kind of inspired by other giant whales, like Jonah as well as another touchstone mm -hmm. from the Bible, other giant whale stories from the past. And when you think about the teeth of the sea, you think jaws you think sharks but the teeth on this whale that that again felt really there was just something visceral about that that the the shots of those closing jaws and the jagged teeth sort of lining up with each other he, he is framed as a a total creature of horror especially then when you have the sequence um when they're trying to escape from him when they get him to sneeze and then he's chasing them that he is just this huge relentless force that is going to chase them down until they find a way to stop him and and that that is like a pure horror idea that's almost like the the central idea of it follows where it's going to keep following you until you either die or you pass this curse on to somebody else and somebody else has to deal with it for a while they they are stuck in the situation until they can find a way to outfox this thing that is just completely hell-bent on eating them alive it's it's so creepy so the other thing i want to say the last thing i want to say about monstro uh, relates back to geppetto let's go back to geppetto as, as pinocchio does geppetto in many many ways is a completely unfit father especially because he proposes to pinocchio they just keep living in the whale It'll be fine. We'll just live. A, we'll just live a, a healthy life in Monstro, and obviously they escape from there and they go back home. This was something that struck me as a bit of a cop out. They just go home and everything's fine. And beyond that, Pinocchio does become a real boy, but not before he dies. What the hell, Sam? What the hell? Well, yeah, he's, he's, he's earned it. He has to earn being a real boy somehow. So he, he sacrifices himself more or less to save Geppetto, like he puts himself in danger, he puts his selfish impulses behind. Uh, or just just a kind of, like, okay, so he is kind of selfish throughout the movie, but he's more just naive and easily manipulated. And I think the moment where he finds out Geppetto's in the wheel, what a sentence, and he um, plucks up <laughs> the courage to go and, and get him back, even though Jiminy is kind of saying, no, don't do it, it's too dangerous. I think this is a kind of real coming-of-age moment for Pinocchio, capped off by this sacrifice of his life, insofar as he has a life, because he is a wooden puppet, and I wouldn't expect him to be able to drown anywhere. 
Surely, Sam, there had to be an easier way for him to earn that. Surely. Well, what do you think about real boy Pinocchio? I think he's kind of uncanny because he yeah. gets so used to Pinocchio Pinocchio, the puppet version, that when he actually is a real boy, you're like, ooh, he, he looks a lot like Pinocchio, but that's not the Pinocchio I've been watching for the last hour and a half. Yeah, and it's not the Pinocchio that you see over and over again in like other Disney spin-off media either. It's similar with um, the prince from Beauty and the Beast. He's a weird-looking guy. Nobody likes the way that the prince looks at the end of Beauty and the Beast. It's the beast that you see at Disneyland. It's the beast that you see in every other kind of spin-off. Like, there aren't, and we're skipping ahead a bit, but there aren't sequels to Beauty and the Beast. There's midquels because you want to keep him as the beast. So these movies are all about, you know, moving past our personal feelings in order to evolve in the, into our, like, true state. We're not a puppet. We're not a beast. We're a real boy. But Disney the marketing machine that it is doesn't let them have that, you know, in the real world. It doesn't let Pinocchio stay as a real boy because no one wants to buy toys with that creepy looking kid on them. (laughs) Well, I think we've managed to process pretty much all of the trauma. Uh, I really, really needed that. So now that we've done that, let's load on some more trauma because we've reached discarded the section of the show where we go back to the original tale that the filmmakers drew from looking at the weird creepy things that disney took one look at and said hell no sam they said hell yes to so many of the terrible things in pinocchio so what did they actually say no to all right strap in because this is this is a doozy (laughs) I've, i've not read the novel but you know that's my caveat but this is what i know right Pinocchio in the original doesn't get brought to life by the Blue Fairy. Pinocchio begins life as just a magical talking log. Oh, so he's a sentient log before he then gets shaped into a boy? He's a sentient log who gets shaped into a boy and then immediately comes to life, which is just creepy and, you know, brings to mind, again, Evil Dead, which we talked about last time, or like, you know, sentient trees tree beard accepted i guess groot as well generally not great guys in fiction and Mm -hmm. pinocchio is no exception he's a horrible (laughs) bloke he's a really horrible guy like in this movie it feels like becoming a real boy is more about becoming an adult it's about gaining an experience and leaving your naivety behind in the original it's much more becoming a good person because for for the most part he's a horrible person first thing he does he kicks geppetto Not a great way to say hi to your new dad. Kicking and screaming into the world. Yeah, then he gets um, Geppetto arrested for child abuse. Geppetto spends the first half of this book in prison. What? Why? But but Geppetto didn't actually abuse him. No, no, he kind of misled the police into thinking that Geppetto was an abusive father and he gets locked away. Oh, flipping heck. I mean, there was an element in the film where it was like, Pinocchio didn't ask to be born, and <laughs> it's Geppetto. This is why Geppetto's a bad dad, because Geppetto is the one who inflicts the curse of life upon him, and then all of these terrible things happen um, that he didn't have to have to go through. He could have just been a, a happy, non-sentient puppet. So moving on to uh, Jiminy Cricket... <laughs> We've got to go pretty swift through this, Ben. There's a lot. Yeah. Jiminy Cricket, like I said before, plays a much smaller role in this. Uh, he's not called Jiminy Cricket. That was a Disney invention. He's just a cricket who um, is much more, again, just he seems just like an aggro guy. I think Pinocchio comes home after all this stuff with getting Geppetto arrested. The cricket starts shouting at them, you know, why are you such an awful dude, Pinocchio? And Pinocchio immediately kills it with a hammer. 
he kills Jiminy Cricket with a hammer. Yes. I'm sorry, that again, that just really took me aback. Yeah. Wow, what a horrible little guy. He comes back as a ghost later on, briefly, but yeah, Jiminy doesn't last very long in the world of, of Collodi's novel. There's a sequence where Pinocchio is like, you know, kicking back and chilling by the fire and he burns his legs off. I mean, you have a very brief version of that here where his finger's on fire, but yeah. that's, that's nowhere near as extreme. So he has to wait till Geppetto gets released from prison so he can come back and give him some new legs. I hope Geppetto said, absolutely not. Look what you've just done to me. You forced me to spend time in prison by making everyone think I abused you. I'm not making you new legs, you little shit. Yeah, you're only going to get up to more horrible antics, which is exactly what he does. So... <laughs> The fox and the cat play a similar role in this, but they get a lot more violent where by the end of the book, they've attempted to lynch Pinocchio. They string Pinocchio up by his neck on a tree and they get bored of waiting for Pinocchio to suffocate because obviously he's a puppet, so he's not going to. At one point in the struggle, Pinocchio bites off the cat's hand. Oh my god, I, I am now becoming slowly more thankful um, for, for the, the toned-down Disney version that we got. That's Wow, that is extreme. That's yeah. very extreme. Uh, and lastly, I mean, not lastly, but I'm keeping it brief, Pinocchio fully turns into a donkey in this version and spends some time being abused in the circus. And when he goes underwater to uh, try and look for Geppetto, the fish in the sea eat all of the donkey skin off of his body. They they chew the donkey skin off him, leaving the wooden Pinocchio beneath. So he's still a, a wooden boy trapped inside a fleshy cage of a donkey. Yeah. And I don't feel too much sympathy for him, to be honest, Ben. Sounds like he brought it on himself. That's the thing with the with the film. It's a case of look, you've got to prove your moral fibre to be a good boy. But he's he doesn't really do anything wrong. He's just naive. He just follows the wrong people. Yeah. Um, so that feels like a, a sort of a central tenet to the plot. But they obviously then didn't want to make him a complete villain like he seems to be in the story. So it's still the idea of he has to earn it, but you don't feel like he's done anything not to earn it in the in the movie. Yeah. So this is the first of many Disney adaptations. Like, you know, Snow White was one thing, but this really sands down a lot of the rougher edges on the book just to make it, like, releasable as a film. Like, can you imagine if it had made this? Exactly like the way Geppetto sanded down that log and shaped it into a real boy. (laughs) Perfect metaphor. So, Sam, we've spoken about the film we've said what we think about it what did critics have to say at the time were they as traumatized as we were back in 1940 well actually although there were some kind of dissenting opinions this movie generally received higher critical praise in some quarters than snow white so you know snow white was a huge popular success it was a huge box office success but we'll have critics like from Time Magazine saying that this is Disney's second film and in every respect except its score, we had this on the score, in every respect except its score, it's his best in craftsmanship and delicacy of drawing and colouring, in the articulation of its characters, in the greater variety and depth of its photographic effects, it tops the high standard Snow White set. And another critic, Archer Winston, who was critical of Snow White, said that the faults that were in Snow White no longer exist in Pinocchio. When you're writing about Pinocchio, you are only limited by your own power of expressing enthusiasm. Wow, so they're as big up up on it as you are, and saying quite a lot of the things that that we felt watching it, or I felt watching it, which is it is bigger and it's more impressive and it's such a, a step up. It's horrific, 
but it is impressive. <laughs> mm. I mean, it didn't do anywhere near as well as Snow White at the box office, though. And you, really? Yeah, you have to assume that that is in part due to the fact that it's just not as mainstream a story. Walt himself said that it may have lacked Snow White's heart appeal, even though technically and artistically it's superior. So whereby Snow White made $3.5 million domestically, Pinocchio only made $1.5 million. And unfortunately, this is 1940, so domestically is pretty much the only market that there is. They couldn't really ship this film to Asia and Europe because we're right in the middle of World War II. Of course. Is it, do you think that impacted the domestic takings as well was this is this the story that people want to see in the middle of wartime maybe so yeah possibly but this was pre-pearl harbor so the war wasn't the only thing on america's minds at this point quite yet and um, but you know snow white was huge at home but it was even bigger abroad and that was an avenue that was totally cut off for pinocchio so that for a lot of reasons this just didn't do quite as well and it's actually quite a big setback that apparently affected walt on quite a personal level at this early point in the studio's history when they were still untested as a a recurrent presence at the box office. Because as we said much earlier on, on the back of Snow White, they were walking on air, they were doubling down, they bought their studio space, they were making these two films. I guess it must have, yeah, must have been a hit to take that the second film comes out and it does less than half of the business that the first one does yeah i mean it still did quite well for a movie it was still you know it ranked probably within the top 20 of films that year uh, in america but it didn't make anywhere near its enormous budget it eventually would make that back because after the war disney would start their practice which lasted for decades of re-releasing their films in cinemas once every about seven years so pinocchio would quickly become the favorite that it is today they just thought new generations need to be traumatized by this. It sounds like a it sounds like a uh, a sort of horror situation. Every seven years, it comes back to terrify <laughs> a new generation of children. Pinocchio. So that was what the critics thought. That was what audiences thought. But what do you think of it now, Ben? This one I kind of struggle with. I I gave Snow White four stars. This one, I feel really caught between the fact that it is really impressive and such a leap and really interesting and wild and weird but i also genuinely didn't really enjoy watching it i did not enjoy this film because because i was so shocked by it and because it was it was almost more difficult to watch because it was something with quite an innocent front to it that was actually really dark under the surface that um felt really uncomfortable so i think on a pure viewing experience of like this story this character just the pure experience of watching the film it would be like a three from me but you really have to take into account all of the animation stuff which is visually incredible it's even more so i think i said last time that snow white looked great it was such a really good looking film but this one is genuinely next level and i love all of that stuff where you have different types of animation different styles of animation all colliding with each other on the screen in a way that feels really stimulating and really ambitious so i i think that probably drags it up to a four but if if it was a case of like hey should i watch pinocchio i don't know (laughs) i don't know who this film is for i would not show this film to kids I think for adults, it's sort of a bit kiddie-ish, but then also really, really dark in a way that's a kind of horrible combination. So beyond a piece of interesting, historically valuable art, 
I don't know who I'd recommend to watch this film today. So that's my very complicated feelings. It's a three, maybe a four, three and a half. Well, Ben, that's absolutely fine. But in being so reticent to award Pinocchio five stars, you are jeopardizing your chances at getting the first in Disneyversity. I'm fine with that. I don't, I, I don't mind what grade I get as long as I get to be a real boy at the end of it all. That's what really counts. So for me, it's an absolutely solid five stars. I think this film is almost completely perfect. I'm, I'm, I guess maybe I'm just a bit more open to the the absolute trauma of it than you are, or a bit more immune to that. But um, I do find it really entertaining. I do find it fairly funny. I think there's, I'm not laughing out loud, but the humour here is more sophisticated and verbal than it is in Snow White. I'm not saying it's like the thick of it or something, but I think, you know, Jiminy and Geppetto and Honest John have some quite chuckleable little lines of dialogue there. But what it really represents for me is the absolute peak of Disney animation meeting what was for a long time the peak of their storytelling abilities as well. It's a really tight screenplay with only a tiny little lull, I think, in that underwater sequence preceding Monstro. And especially compared to something like Fantasia, which is the only film, in my opinion, that really rivals it for like technical prowess and for sheer beauty. But Fantasia isn't a narrative film, as we'll talk about next time. Whereas this really brings those two strands of what Disney was really, really good at together in a way that just fits so well. I think it's, I think it's a perfect five-star film. I'll be awarding probably many more five-stars in the coming weeks because I just love this early run of Disney features so much. But this is, for me, the absolute peak. And it wouldn't get this good until like the 1990s. Wow. High praise indeed. Uh, So now it's time for our final section of the show, which is Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. So, Sam, are there straight-to-DVD sequels for Pinocchio? We didn't have one for Snow White because we were talking about how it's the first Disney movie and it's kind of pure in that sense. Do they have that same reverence for Pinocchio? Um, well, there there has not been a straight-to-DVD sequel for Pinocchio. Uh, there was one in the early stages of production when uh, John Lasseter and the Pixar guys arrived at Disney and shut all of that down in about 2005. So there was one in production, but they never got around to it. There also has yet to be a live-action remake, although there has been one in development hell for a while. I, I wonder if that is now fully on the back burner because obviously Guillermo del Toro is working on an animated Pinocchio for Netflix at the moment. His take is going to be a sort of uh, a tale about fascism in Mussolini's Italy. Um, so that sounds a really ambitious, wild thing. But I wonder if that means that for the moment, Disney aren't going to touch this as a, as a live action one. Mm. Well, apparently they have had Sam Mendes and Paul King attached in the past, and at the minute oh, wow. it's uh, in the lap of Robert Zemeckis. With most recent reports say that Tom Hanks was in talks for Geppetto and Kylie Minogue was in talks for the Blue Fairy, so we'll see if this ever sees the light of day. I mean, that does sound like prime Zemeckis territory that he could use all the technological stuff that he loves to 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 play with to do the alternating scales and that kind of thing. Mm. I mean if we're talking about adaptations, obviously AI, AI sprang to mind massively because that's a film that I know quite well or have revisited quite recently. And I think it was only revisiting Pinocchio that I realized how closely AI hues to um to this the central idea, even that the the notion of the blue fairy is there all the way through through AI as well and his 
quest to become a real boy. Um, so I feel like this is a story that's entered the popular culture in that way as well, in sort of indirect ways. Mm. And something else that's entered the popular consciousness very much is When You Wish Upon a Star, which I think we should talk about briefly, just as a, a complete breakout from this film. It won the Academy Award for Best Song in 1940 and it of course has just become the disney theme song i had forgotten or never really realized that it comes from pinocchio you oh. just know it as a disney song or i did anyway um so that was something that that struck me in the opening couple of minutes that it was like oh when you wish upon a star comes from pinocchio you just accept it as a song that you hear at disneyland or in a general disney context yeah or in the in the logo in the castle logo that precedes all of disney's films of course of course it's the equivalent of totoro being the ghibli logo yeah um i think we should also talk about speaking of like sequels and spin-offs jiminy cricket has popped up in a lot of other disney media he's been like the real breakout character or one of the real breakout characters from this so very shortly we're going to watch a film called fun and fancy free which is an anthology film that features jiminy as like the narrator he also like the seven dwarfs popped up in a lot of educational films and he had a segment an educational segment on the mickey mouse club tv show in the 50s and 60s would you like to guess at the other character from pinocchio who became a breakout star and appeared in his own shorts Oh god, they're all so horrible um, that I I really hope none of them was it. Was it the friend? Was it the donkey friend? What was his name? Lampwick. Lampwick. Was it Lampwick? Uh, not that I'm aware of, although quite possibly he's he's made some appearances as well. But in fact, Figaro, Geppetto's cat, the nice cat, Figaro was apparently Walt's favorite character in the film and was quickly migrated into the Mickey Mouse universe. Right. So Figaro appeared in a bunch of shorts as Minnie Mouse's cat and sort of Pluto's opposite number, like Pluto's rival. So there we go. I mean, did you feel any kind of attachment to that cat? Did you say that guy looks like a star? I didn't think that at the time, but in hindsight, it is one of the only things in this movie or one of the only characters in this movie that is not completely and utterly reprehensible. So it makes sense. So I was doing a bit of looking up, and there is a theme park ride for this. It's called Pinocchio's Daring Journey. Daring seems like a uh, a very mild adjective for everything that Pinocchio goes through. And this ride came about in the 80s, actually. It wasn't like an OG Disneyland ride. I think, in fact, they brought it in for the Tokyo Disneyland. Um, so it came up in the 80s, and it's a few Disney sites. And kind of like the Snow White ride last week, you basically just sit in a little car, and it takes you around a bunch of different scenes from the film, mostly dramatic ones. You go to Pleasure Island, and then the flipping whale pops out at you at the end which is uh, looks pretty intense and uh, there's a pretty major effect going on there in the at the end the blue fairy pops up to turn pinocchio into a real boy at the very end and as you're looking at her on the ride she sort of disappears into fairy dust and they use the same technique that they used on the haunted mansion it's a very sort of specific use of of projection to sort of yeah create this illusion of of this character disappearing before your very eyes so it's significant in that sense doesn't look like the best ride in the world but for all the pinocchio stands out there <laughs> sam this ride's for you yeah I, I, i've took a couple of spins on the disneyland paris version uh, it's very much kind of a throwback to even though it's not an opening day attraction that came about in the 80s like you say it's very much a throwback to those um early fantasy land dark rides like um snow white and peter pan's flight and things like that 
Monstro also makes an appearance in the parks in uh, Disneyland in California specifically, right at the start of the otherwise completely benign Storybook Canal Boat Ride. So Storybook Canal Boat, it's like you're riding around on this little boat around this little river, looking at little dioramas of all the little Disney fairy tale scenes. But it begins with you going through Monstro's mouth. There's this enormous sculpture of Monstro where his eyes move and he spurts steam out of his blowhole. And the ride starts with you going through his mouth and then just coming out the other end into this completely innocuous fantasy land. Oh, that sounds like such a weird way into what sounds like otherwise quite a nice family friendly yeah. ride. It looks stunning if you look at the um if you look at the actual sculpture of Monster, I'll probably put a picture of it on the Instagram. But um it's completely not of a piece with the rest of the attraction. Sam, I'm going to be honest, I never ever want to see Monstro ever again. And that's it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar when we'll be getting absolutely blazed out of our minds and zoning out to the very best of Tchaikovsky with the arrival of Fantasia. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we will personally pay for your post-Pinocchio therapy sessions. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening and sweet dreams. If Monstro doesn't catch you... Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.